Hello and welcome to the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Yan, a PGY4 Neurology resident here at the Yale School of Medicine. As a co-host today, I'm joined by one of our fantastic PGY3 residents, Dr. Billy C. Nurile. As our special guest today, we have a treat. We have my absolute favorite fellow, Dr. Victor Bushlier, who is our neuromuscular fellow here and a graduate of our program in the class of 2023. Victor has kindly agreed to come on and talk to us about lower extremity mononeuropathies. This is a continuation of our prior series, which was started a long time ago with Drs. Abdel-Hakim and Dr. Dewey, where we covered upper extremity anatomy, lower extremity anatomy, and upper extremity mononeuropathies. So we figured we would round out the course with a short discussion of lower extremity neuropathies. So how are you doing, Victor? I'm doing okay. Just finished some EMGs this morning, which one you attended at the end. Well, good to hear that. How are you doing, Billy? Good to be here. And it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Victor. So before we begin, I just wanted to formally reference the prior episodes I mentioned earlier. They are episodes 20 which is peripheral neuroanatomy of the upper limb, episode 22, which is mononeuropathies of the upper limb, and episode 23, which is peripheral neuroanatomy of the lower limb. They were published in September and November of 2020 with Drs. Abdel-Hakim and Dewey. It has been a while since the anatomy of the lower limb episode, so we figured we would quickly run over the anatomy of the lumbar and sacral spine again. So, Victor, how do you think about the anatomy of the back? So, when we think about innovation in the lower extremities and anatomy of the lower back, I like to reference the plexus. Just like in the upper extremity, you have the cervical plexus, C5231, you have a lumbosacral plexus for the lower extremity. The lumbosacral plexus, in my own personal kind of emotional opinion, I don't find as elegant and pretty as the brachial plexus in the cervical area but stands from the L1 level to the S3 level in most references. There can be some variations depending on how you defined it, but orienting yourself in the lumbosacral plexus can be a starting point for the lower extremity mononeuropathies that ultimately branch off of the plexus. And some of the bigger nerves that we think about coming off of the plexus include the femoral nerve, the sciatic nerve, and later divisions of these will give us things like the perineal nerve, the tibial nerve, the saphenous nerve, and the sural nerve. In addition, we'll mention some of the nerve roots and smaller nerves that come off. But those bigger nerves are going to be the focus of our discussion. I think it's helpful for our listeners if we frame this in an anatomic-based discussion. So first, let's talk about the Carter Aquina. So Carter Aquina syndrome, when we classically worry about it, we do worry about compressive pathologies, acute compressions. You can have abscesses that form in the area. You can have infiltration with tumor. There can be systemic processes that may not necessarily even come up on imaging, on MRI, that could involve the quadriquina. But in general, when you worry about acute compression, that would be a primary suspect. So in your opinion, what are some symptoms of quadriquina syndrome we'd like to watch out for? So because the quadriquina effectively corresponds to the nerve root, you're going to see lower motor neuron distribution symptoms in addition to bladder and bowel dysfunction. Now, unlike conus medullaris syndrome, which you can have upper motor neuron dysfunction, 
it can be a differentiating sign, although bladder and bowel is affected in both. Because the cauda equina branches into the roots on both sides, you can have more prominent asymmetry than you would see with conus medullaris syndrome. But in cauda equina syndrome, patients can present with severe back pain. If there's an infectious component, there may be fever. If there's not, there will not be in other systemic symptoms. They can have unilateral paresis, they can have severe multi-nerve distribution weakness in addition to the aforementioned bowel and bladder dysfunction. Either incontinence or constipation, it's important to think of both. With that in mind, what are some potential causes of cauda syndrome? So as I've said before, although it's possible to have severe herniations affected, generally we worry about abscesses, traumas can be the case, and infiltrations from tumor and systemic processes affecting it as well, and some vascular etiologies as well. Such as Foie-Alajuan syndrome. Yes, perhaps. With that in mind, what's the standard workup and management? So when we talk about cauda syndrome, obviously imaging it is crucial. If you have a significant enough clinical history and exam, involving surgery on the sooner side, if not immediately, maybe prudent even before imaging, but MRI is the first step. If MRI is surprisingly negative and the history is concordant to suspected, you may go as far as to perform lumbar puncture and look for systemic processes too in imaging negative cauda equina syndrome. Excellent. So next, for our medical historians, cauda equina is Latin for horse's tail. And it was so named because it looked kind of like the tail of a horse on gross pathology. Yeah, that was an excellent summary of a syndrome. Now I think we can go ahead and review some radiculopathies. So the most common radiculopathy in the lower extremity is L5 radiculopathy. Common presenting symptoms, one is just sensory, can be as little as a radiating pain and numbness in the distribution of the dermatome. But it's important to keep in mind that dermatomes overlap, so things may not be clear-cut. Straight leg test raises can be helpful if it reproduces the same symptoms. And of course, if it's severe enough, you can have motor involvement in the distribution of the myotone of that radicular nerve. What are some common etiologies of radiculopathies? It's probably still structural when we talk about herniated discs. There can be many more surreptitious and concerning etiologies, not to say that disc herniations aren't concerning. It can be disabling and paralyzing, but by far herniations. How would you work up the more standard radiculopathies? So once again, radiculopathies are probably best evaluated on MRI. You can get EMG to evaluate for radiculopathy, and we do do that. The limitations are that for sensory involvement only, without weakness, EMG is not particularly sensitive. There are things we can do on EMG that can help a little bit, but it's not going to be as good as an MRI. So that ends up being the gold standard, especially if we think detecting and diagnosing a radiculopathy will affect clinical management versus just doing physical therapy and not doing anything surgical. And this is a very testable question on certification examinations and the point I'm glad you brought up. Can you remind our listeners why a nerve conduction study is going to be normal in a pure sensory radiculopathy? Yeah, so it's important to keep in mind that where the actual nucleus of these nerves comes from, when we're assessing for motor fibers at the anterior horn, 
within the spinal cord itself, the compression for herniations happens distal. And because of that, you can detect abnormalities on nerve conduction studies, in addition to recruitment on EMG, which is a muscle assessment. But when we're talking about sensory involvement, the dorsal ganglion is actually located past the point of where you see the herniation. And because of that, because it's distal to it, you may not detect any changes with degeneration in that area, and the sensory nerve action potentials will be normal. Put simply, the sensory nerve conduction studies will be normal in a radiculopathy, and you're not going to have any muscle involvement initially in a sensory radiculopathy. And lastly, with that in mind, what are some treatment options for radiculopathy? So radiculopathy can be managed conservatively, you can do physical therapy, you can do medications, over-the-counter medications. In severe radicular pain, some people, although evidence does not back it up, have tried steroids, which can provide anecdotal, very prominent relief. Usually, if it is an issue with disc herniation, the disc can reabsorb over time, usually in the span of three to six months, and that can be the end of that. But if there is no improvement and the pain is severe and refractory, Surgery can be considered. The thing to keep in mind is although the studies aren't great on it, the long-term outcomes don't really change with surgery. The exception to keep in mind here is with paresis. If people have notable weakness, and I'm really referring to weakness at the level of 3 out of 5 or below, then generally, although studies, once again, are variable, most neurologists and neurosurgeons would agree that surgery is the recommendation. Excellent. So thank you so much for that summary of cauda equinus syndrome and radiculopathies, Victor. So in no particular order, we might as well go ahead and go over the nerves. So first, let's talk about the femoral nerve. So the femoral nerve comes off the second through the fourth lumbar roots. When it comes off, it's generally more posterior compared to something like the obturator nerve. When it travels, it ultimately goes down innervates the iliopsoas muscles internally still within the abdominal cavity. And then as it goes posterior under the inguinal ligament, passes through the femoral triangle, which is helpful to think about the navel mnemonic, that the nerve is lateral to the artery from our navel, nerve, artery, vein, and so on, from lateral to medial. And as it travels down, it splits into an anterior and posterior division, distal to the inguinal ligament, the anterior divisions providing sensory innervation to the anterior medial thigh, with the posterior division providing motor innervation to the quadriceps muscles. And then sensory innervation lower down as the saphenous nerve in the medial anterior leg. Great. So our understanding is that femoral nerve mononeuropathy is relatively uncommon due to the location and how well it's protected. But what are some etiologies of femoral neuropathy that we see? So as you said, they are rare. I do find it quite interesting. It's probably helpful to think about proximal to the inguinal ligament etiology and at the inguinal ligament etiologies and distal to it. Proximal to the inguinal ligament, we think about intraperitoneal or retroperitoneal etiologies. We worry about things such as hematoma or abscess formation. If that is 
involved in a classical manner, you should see weakness in hip flexion because the iliopsoas is innervated proximal to the iguinal ligament, in addition to the distal innervations such as sensory loss in the anteromedial thigh and leg and weakness of the quadriceps. Again, intra-cavity, intraperitoneal, retroperitoneal etiologies is the major concern there. For the inguinal ligament pathologies that do not present with hip flexion weakness because the iliopsoas is proximal, as I said, and only the distal components, these uh, are more diverse. You can have things as simple as femoral artery catheter injuries that are vascular. You can have iatrogenic surgical injuries in the area in general. Some people report that prolonged lithotomy position can compress that nerve due to deflection at the hip that causes, but there can be a larger variety. And as with all mononeuropathies, trauma is something that can be localizing, although not something that would come in without a clinical history as a consideration. So what about workup of this? And I'll just tell our listeners ahead of time that electromyography and nerve conduction study is going to be an answer for basically all of these. So we'll mention that now and we'll talk about other unique modalities. As you just said, EMG is probably a way that you can diagnose a femoral neuropathy. It's very important to keep in mind if you have a compression at the inguinal ligament and it is strictly demyelinating, and we do nerve conductions distal in terms of stimulation to the inguinal ligament, it will actually be normal bilaterally because it's strictly a demyelinating lesion. And if there's a conduction block, you may not see any slowing. And if there's no axonal loss, you may not see any drop in amplitude. That being said, if there's an axonal loss, then nerve conduction can be helpful. Now, the EMG component can also be helpful because it can help tease out radiculopathy from femoral neuropathy versus other mimics. I should also point out that if it is proximal to the inguinal ligament, getting imaging of the abdomen can be crucial because you do not want to miss a hematoma or a mass for that matter. Yeah, and something that we sometimes see in the hospital in patients who've recently had procedures includes femoral artery aneurysm or pseudoaneurysm in addition to a retroperitoneal hemorrhage or hematoma if that compartment was accessed. So certainly something to think about. Next, we can go on to the sciatic nerve. So the sciatic nerve is definitely a very large and important nerve. It innervates essentially all of the distal muscles and it innervates the hamstrings. It is composed from the L4 to S3 nerve roots, the lumbosacral trunk, L4, L5, gives its lumbar distributions and then S1 to S3, its sacral distributions of which it is formed. As the sciatic nerve is formed, it descends right under the piriformis muscle, which alludes to piriformis syndrome, which has some contention about how common it is and how real it is at times. But the sciatic nerve travels distally down into the thigh and the posterior aspect, and then branches into the perineal and tibial divisions. Honestly, it's helpful to think about its branching it quite proximally. In fact, it's often taught, and I think it's helpful to think about the sciatic nerve as actually two nerves combined, tibial and perineal, from the very beginning. 
because the tibial division of the sciatic nerve innervates all of the muscles in the hamstrings aside from the biceps femoris short head, which is innervated by the perineal division. As the sciatic nerve ultimately branches into the perineal and tibial and splits where you see physical nerve around the popliteal fossa, things become a little bit easier to think about in terms of tibial and perineal distributions. But I emphasize this because if you have a perineal neuropathy presentation clinically, it's important to keep in mind that sciatic neuropathies often present with a perineal distribution on exam. So if someone has a perineal neuropathy examination, it may still be sciatic in its localization of the lesion. What are subsciatic neuropathies that you think our listeners should be aware of? We mentioned one earlier. In general, all nerves can be affected by trauma. That's one etiology. Sciatic neuropathies, actual neuropathies are not actually that common. You can have a very interesting presentation of vasculitis of the sciatic nerve because it's thought of as an arterial watershed between the two feeder arteries proximally and distally. So it can be one of the preferential nerves to be involved in a vasculitic syndrome. So it's important to keep in mind that differential. But otherwise, trauma, iatrogenic procedures, Hip arthroplasty can affect the sciatic nerve depending on how instrumentation and the surgery was done. Those are things to keep in mind. I mentioned quickly a few minutes ago piriformis syndrome. This is a bit controversial. The thinking would say that the piriformis muscle or the anatomy orientation of the nerve in the muscle is abnormal in some way and the nerve gets compressed under the piriformis muscle under which it exits. The problem with this is a lot of studies electrophysiologically do not show any abnormalities in the distribution of the nerve. People tend to have symptoms, and certainly there are cases that are more convincing, perhaps with MRI abnormalities of the muscle, but this is not a common etiology of sciatic neuropathy. Can you tell us a little bit about sciatica? You know, despite the fact it has sciatica in the name, is this really a mononeuropathy? Generally, no. It's a description of symptoms. Next, let's talk about the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve or the lateral cutaneous nerve of the thigh. The lateral femoral cutaneous or lateral cutaneous nerve of the thigh has contributions from L2 and L3 lumbar nerves. This is important to keep in mind, even though femoral is in the name, it is not a branch of the femoral nerve. These are a branch off of the roots to form this nerve. It passes under the inguinal ligament right near the acis of the anterior superior iliac spine and tends to get compressed in the region, so we think. In reality, it's often idiopathic, and it's not clear why it happens in most of the patients we see it, but there can be the common ideologies. You think about all these mononeuropathies, such as trauma, such as compression due to positioning, such as stagnation, and some people point things out like tight-fitting belts or clothes. Those are things to consider. In terms of the distribution, it's strictly sensory. There is no motor involvement here, and it innervates the lateral anterior aspect of the tie. What is this syndrome called? So people call this myalgia parasthetica, algae implying it's painful. This is generally not just numbness, although I've seen that too. Yeah, myalgia parasthetica is also called Bernhardt-Roth syndrome. Next, let's talk about the perineal nerve. This one has a lot of meat to it. <laughs> 
Yeah, the perineal nerve is definitely one of the more common mononeuropathies. Other common names for the perineal nerve to keep in mind have been the fibular nerve, the common fibular nerve, the common perineal. Some people have referred to it as the external popliteal or the lateral popliteal nerve. The perineal nerve has both motor and sensory innervation. This is a branch off of the sciatic nerve, as we discussed earlier. There is innervation from the L4 to S1 distribution. The perineal nerve, as it branches off of the sciatic nerve, wraps around. You can actually often stimulate it quite well on the tendon of the bicep femoris short head and long head on the outside. As it wraps around, it wraps around the fibular neck before it branches out into the superficial and deep division. It gives off a lateral sensory nerve of the knee, which is typically not affected in compression of the fibular neck because it comes off proximally. But after the neck, it divides into the superficial and deep divisions of the perineal nerve. The superficial division responsible for sensation on most of the lateral aspects aspect of the leg and the foot and the everter muscles such as the peroneus longus and the peroneus brevis. The deep division of the peroneal nerve is responsible for motor innervation of the ankle dorsiflexors, most notably the tibialis anterior, but other muscles as well, as well as the extensor digitorum brevis muscles that allow you to essentially bring up the toes, dorsiflex the toes. It provides a small sensory innervation to the interweb space between the first toe and the second toe. It's quite tiny. Can you tell us how we differentiate a foot drop? What's the standard examination finding and also work up for a foot drop? Right, so perineal foot drop will be strictly in the perineal nerve distribution. So you will have weakness in eversion and dorsiflexion at the ankle, but you should not have any weakness in inversion or plantar flexion. A common differential to consider is L5 radiculopathy, which would do that, affect plantar flexion and inversion, in addition potentially to eversion and dorsiflexion at the ankle. And work up for that to differentiate them can start with EMG because you can detect the nerve conduction abnormalities and again, MRI can help detect radiculopathies. On nerve conduction study, what's the key finding that our listeners should be aware of? So the things that you would associate with if there's a compression around the fibular neck is you may see conduction block and temporal dispersion. As you stimulate below and above the fibular neck, you may notice a drop in the CMAP amplitude as well as a widening of the duration. There may be slowing as well. Some common ideologies to perineal neuropathy to consider aside from compression can be stagnation where the patient is not mobile for long periods of times. Again, positioning in certain procedures for surgeries can exacerbate and pull on the nerve, which can lead to neuropathy traumas with other mononeuropathies that we have discussed. And a notable thing to keep in mind is weight loss. A prominent weight loss can be associated with perineal neuropathy. We think sometimes because of the loss of padding to the nerve and therefore it becoming more readily compressible. I think we can move on to the tibial nerve. So the tibial nerve is not a common mononeuropathy. The tibial, like the perineal, is a branch off to the sciatic nerve. There can be both proximal and distal lesions of the tibial nerve, and once again, these are not common. 
the innervation of the tibial nerve spans mostly the L5 through S2 to S3 level. Sometimes there's contention that there can be a little bit of L4 contribution depending on where you're looking, but mostly L5 to the S3 levels. The tibial nerve, as I was saying a little bit earlier, is a branch off of the sciatic nerve, and it's often helpful to think of the sciatic nerve as both perineal and tibial in its makeup from the very beginning. There can be both distal and proximal lesions of the tibial nerve. The tibial nerve gives both motor and sensory innervation. The motor innervation of the tibial nerve, again, it's helpful to think of it as part of the sciatic, actually can start off very proximally in the hamstrings. You could say that the tibial nerve innervates the bicep femoris long head, the semitendinosus, the semimembranosus, when it's part of the sciatic nerve. Of course, if you have abnormalities, there's a sciatic lesion, but it's part of the tibial contributions from the sciatic. When it gets distal to the popliteal fossa, when it's a proper tibial nerve, no longer part of the sciatic, it innervates the ankle plantar flexors, the gastrocnemius, the soleus prominently, as well as inverters such as the posterior tibialis and long flexors of the toes, so the flexor digitorum longus and hallucis longus. When it gets distal to the ankle and it wraps around the medial malleolus, it gives off branches such as the medial plantar, the lateral plantar, and the calcaneal branches, the calcaneal being strictly sensory and the medial and lateral plantar branches being sensory and motor, both giving sensory innovation to those appropriate medial and lateral areas, as well as motor innervation to the intrinsic muscles of the foot, such as the abductor hallucis brevis or the abductor digiti quinti. You can have both proximal and distal pathologies of the tibial nerve, but they are quite rare. Proximally, if you were to have a surgery of the knee or a hematoma in the area that compressed the tibial nerve, you can have involvement of the ankle plantar flexors in addition to the distal innervations past the ankle. If you were to have a more distal tibial lesion, then the plantar flexors may be relatively spared. I should quickly note that involvement of the distal tibial nerve is referred to tarsal tunnel syndrome at times when it's due to the flex retinaculum around the medial malleolus. But this too, such as piriformis syndrome that we discussed earlier, is a bit of a contentious syndrome. Some individuals, such as podiatrists, uh, encounter patients frequently that seem to have symptom findings that localize to compression of this nerve at the site, but often electrophysiologically no abnormalities are found. So it's hard to say that this is a nerve damage syndrome if it's commonly found. Now let's move on and talk about the last two nerves we'll touch on today, and these are our sensory nerves. I think we can move on to the sural nerve next. Yeah, so the sural nerve is a very important nerve. If for no other reason, then it is a nerve that we commonly check in nerve conduction studies. It's a readily accessible and standardized nerve and a nerve that's often biopsies. The sural nerve comes off of the common perineal and the tibial nerve to be formed and innervate the lateral, posterior, but mostly lateral aspect of the leg. As it's formed, it gets a little bit up, you could say, into the mid-leg, and then it wraps around the lateral malleolus to provide strictly sensory innervation. There's no motor innervation. Do you see isolated neuropathies, and are they ever clinically significant? <laughs> it's funny that you asked that. I actually did see a 
isolated cerebral neuropathy this year, and it was traumatic. I won't give any details, but that is the most common cause if you do see it. It's not a common mononeuropathy to see. I did see it once this year. Yeah, it's my understanding a lot of times cerebral neuropathies are iatrogenic from either cerebral biopsies or other surgical procedures. Because this is usually not a clinically significant nerve, it is something that we sometimes offer up as a sacrificial lamb if we need to biopsy a nerve to work up a systemic process. Fortunately, after the biopsy, you will have a sensory neuropathy yes. distal to the side of the biopsy by design. This is true. Permanent symptoms, unfortunately. A trivia fact about the sural nerve that our listeners might remember from the previous episode that I did with Dr. Kevin Wilson on Guillain-Barre syndrome and inflammatory neuropathies is the sural nerve can sometimes be spared. Yeah, so it's interesting to point that out. When you have sensory abnormalities in a process that's like an inflammatory neuropathy, it can be helpful to find that the sural nerve is spared when other nerves in the upper extremities especially are involved that are sensory. The significance of this basically comes down to it signifies a non-length dependent process. You know, when we talk about peripheral neuropathies, the vast majority of them are length dependent. They start very distally in the toes and by the time they reach the knees and the hands start to be involved. But with inflammatory, especially acute inflammatory neuropathies such as Guillain-Barre, there can be non-length dependent involvement. You can have proximal root being hit and distal nerves being hit. So if you find that very higher up nerves, such as the radial nerve is involved, but the soil is spared, it implies it's not length dependent, which would be significant in that context. And last, let's go ahead and talk about the saphenous nerve. So the saphenous nerve we mentioned previously is a branch off of the femoral nerve. It primarily has L3 to L4 innervation, and it is strictly sensory coming off of that anterior division of the femoral distal to the inguinal ligament. The saphenous nerve provides sensory innervation to the anteromedial leg. And that's basically it. There's not a lot of causes for damage of the saphenous nerve in isolation. But as you can imagine, there can be both traumatic causes, procedural causes, and at times even vascular causes, depending on what's going on in the area. I hope our listeners enjoyed our review of the nerves of the lower extremity and some of their mononeuropathies. Just want to say thank you so much for joining us today, Victor. We really want to appreciate the time you spent with us and learning from you. Of course. Thank you for having me, Kevin, Billy. And thank you to our listeners chiming in today for the podcast. 